Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Over the holidays, we're going to be releasing highlights from past episodes from this year every morning of Hanukkah and each day during the 12 days of Christmas. If you're a founder or investor and looking to meet more folks in the ecosystem, each week I host a networking event on my Upstream channel. The link is in the show notes to join on mobile. Looking forward to seeing you there. I'm excited to share highlights from my episode with Rishi Garg, one of the co-heads of Mayfield Fund's Consumer Practice. Mayfield is a global venture capital firm with the people-first philosophy of investing. Without further ado, here's Rishi. So tell me a little bit about your background. What what fascinated you originally about working in technology, founding a company? Yeah, so to, uh, to not um, sort of belabor the point too much, the I think the thing that really got me excited about the internet was that um, it was a way to both be incredibly creative as a founder or as a participant in the internet, um, and also build an interesting business and build something sustainable that um, you know wasn't just art, but was actually also science. And when I when I got to Stanford in 1995 as a freshman, I think 40% of my incoming class was pre-med, as was I. And you know the internet was happening all around us, um, and, the, and Silicon Valley sort of focused on the internet, and it really inspired me. I was uh, I started out as a drama major when I first got to Stanford too, so like I um, I always had this sort of left brain right brain thing, and and that that was just it was the most interesting thing for me ever that a couple of people could build something out of nothing, create something and have it be meaningful to the world. And so um, that's really what got my attention around the space. And I would say since, you know, 99, 2000, I spent my whole career um, being kind of a product first business leader at a bunch of great companies that I was proud to be a part of. And, um, and now I'm here trying to help founders do the same thing. What made you shift and and like in, and want to become an investor? So I, I was really lucky. My second job out of, out of uh, college was I worked for Highland Capital Partners, um, which is a Boston-based venture capital firm, and uh, got to work for the founder, Paul Mater, who was an incredible mentor and an incredible investor. And really through that process, just fell in love with um, the role that an investor could play in company formation and um, helping build something big. Um, and Paul was a really great model for sort of how you do that humanely and with, uh, with great values. Uh, but I wanted to kind of know what I was talking about and experience it and, um, and go and build stuff. So then I had sort of a 13-year operating career after a couple of years there. Uh, a company like Google and, and uh, Square and Twitter, um, my own company that I founded. And, you know, I was sort of thinking about, 
what the next step would be. And really, I was led back into venture capital by people that I trusted who were VCs saying, hey, you know, we think this is something you might really want to do. And the more I looked at it, the more I realized there was something kind of interesting about this moment in time, which is that the Silicon Valley had been so successful for the last 50 years in creating the companies that, especially for the last 20 years, creating the companies that would make a major impact on people's lives. And it was probably going to continue to do that for the next 50 years. And I don't mean just Silicon Valley geographically, but the idea of the technology sector, right? And the leverage that software provided on affecting millions of lives was, was not going to go away anytime soon. And I just felt like a noble thing to do and reason to go to work every day was to like go try to help founders who are trying to make that impact do so as capably and humanely as possible so that as some of these companies become really big companies and affect millions and millions of lives, you know, they're continuing to contribute in a positive way to planetary and human health. And that's kind of how we define our mission here at Mayfield in terms of investing on the consumer side is that we want companies that are not only great businesses, but also have a commitment to planetary and human health. And we think those things are really essential together to build great, sustainable companies. Broadly, what are some changes in consumer behavior that you're most focused on? Yeah, that's a great question. We, uh, we think about that question a lot. What are all the different trends that are happening? Let me give you a few that I think are really kind of interesting. And, and, and then I'll, I want to talk about one in particular because I think it's like one of the most important reducing factors. So some interesting things are happening right now with consumers very large. I think that a lack of intimacy or loneliness is something that a lot of consumers are feeling. So that's something that's really driving how people are trying to react to a world of social media. And then we've all heard about how loneliness is as an epidemic. And so human connection is an important driver. Seeking human connection, I think, is something that uh, is, a, is, is part of the cultural moment. A focus on uh, important values is the second one. Um, I think you've talked on this podcast a lot about sustainability and inclusivity. Um, these are you know, really durable trends, I think, um, culturally. And not things that are sort of fads, but things that I think that will start to define uh, the future of consumer products and consumer experiences for a long time. There's been a lot of talk about experiences over things. I think that's largely true. Um, although experiences can be um, both experienced personally, but also really experiences that are used to capture status. Experiences you can talk about, things you can talk about. Um, because sort of the fourth thing is the rise of social media, especially Instagram, as foundationally visual mediums as places to sort of you know capture accolades or status or or, or attention uh, from an audience. That's kind of become such a pervasive cultural norm that um, products, companies, and services that experiences that help you do that tend to tend to win more than other ones do. Another important trend is kind of the rise of the individual. And, uh, and we see this in a lot of different places, whether it's, you know, especially around work and what it means to be a worker, right? Uh, the gig economy has made uh, this a, a huge trend where people are multi-tenanting on different kinds of gig economy work, um, the rise of the influencer economy, the really strong move towards mobile work and non-co-located work, even at big companies, which I think, you know, creates a lot of interesting sort of dynamics around uh, people, you know, just being really super mobile and digital nomads. And a lot of the room about the passion economy, I think that's sort of a real thing in terms of people increasingly needing and having the tools to build sort of individually driven businesses. We sort of see that to be a, a pretty durable trend as well. And then finally, the one that, there's one that I think is really interesting that we talk about a lot, which is almost drive, almost a core thing for any consumer company today, which is that we're at a time where institutional trust might be 
at an all-time low, certainly in our generation, it's at a big low. And there's so many examples of this, whether it's trust with the big eye in institutions like the government. Um, I think some of the polarization that's occurring today is about um, a lack of trust in institutions that we've typically had uh, a greater amount of trust in. It's every category of company, whether it's uh, CPG. You know, I, I like to say around the office when there's asbestos and the baby powder, you know, institutional trust is at an all-time low. Like, how do you trust sort of brands that you've that that make all the things in your house when you know your most delicate humans that have products that, that they can feel are safe, right? It goes to sustainability with gas guzzling cars and how people feel about the car companies that they've had relation and, and the relation of that to Tesla. It comes to the big tech companies. Medicine, I think, is an interesting one. We're seeing now a bunch of trends in diets around paleo and keto. And obviously the low carb movement's been around for a while, but like really as a cultural norm, we're realizing that the science, quote unquote, that drove the food pyramid for 50 or 60 years was really faulty and probably contributed to like many, many, many deaths. And, and I think that sort of miss on the part of traditional medicine or institutional medicine has sparked a lot more interest in alternative sources of truth when it comes to medical information. So in almost every case, you know, even education, I think people have realized after the last, after the Great Recession, that the institutions they trusted to sort of prepare them for the work world, maybe didn't give them all the tools that they needed. You know, I think we're seeing an unprecedented level of questioning around the idea of a college education, whether or not what a college education does is really the things that you need. And there's so many companies that are being started to kind of address that. That's going all the way down to, do we trust our public schools? to provide the education that we need to prepare our kids for the future. So, you know, the, the marketplaces for the development of human capital, really at any age, are, uh, are very interesting right now. And so this lack of institutional trust, I think, is really important. It's, it's where the big opportunity is for any consumer company, if you want to build a really big company. Because as consumers writ large are increasingly mistrustful of historical institutions, whether they're for nonprofit, government, education, what have you, um, there's an opportunity for companies to step into the gap and for mission-driven and values-driven founders to carefully play that curation role to help consumers make sense of the world um, and help them consume the right experiences and products. And that's kind of, some of the things sort of like a, a missing nugget in how we talk about consumer uh, companies right now. Because companies that capitalize on that need, I think can actually build very, very big businesses today and create new movements um, in a variety of categories. And so that's kind of, amongst all these trends, kind of underlying how we think about what kind of approach a founder could take to creating a category-defining company. A lot to untangle there. First of all, when you say capitalize on that need, companies have to be purposeful now that are actually being the disruptors, right? I think, I think so, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, consumers, just think about the problem and what consumers are experiencing, Consumers are, have been offered a selection of products and services, right, from companies that serve part of their needs. But a lot has been left on the table. One, I'll give you one trend in particular that I think is like sort of relevant to this. It's like uh, we all have too much information, right? There's just too much stuff to figure out. And a bunch of products and services that used to be sort of like turnkey are now like highly considered purchases, right? We have a company uh, in our portfolio called Road Collaborate, where they sell both third-party and first-party sustainable home essentials, you know, things around your home, cleaning products, that sort of thing, paper. And um, it's amazing how every product category is actually something that a consumer really 
their consumers and their, their millions of customers now really want to think about. Because, you know, in the past, I would just buy whatever I saw on TV that, that was rolled out of my local supermarket. But today, consumers really care about the, the chemicals and the products and, and the origins of those products they have in their homes. So that's a lot of stuff to sort through, right? And what Grove has done is created this really trusted relationship with the consumer so that when consumers subscribe to Grove, they know and trust that Grove will not only provide the best third-party goods and products that sort of meet their sustainability requirements, but also that they bring their own products to market that are even better. And that is, a, that is really a highly intentional goal that the founder set out with um, from the very beginning to kind of create that trust, recognize the need for that trust. And that's become a really big, great business. We're seeing those opportunities in a variety of categories, you know, in all the different areas I mentioned. So that's what I mean by, by helping consumers make decisions in a highly trustworthy way is sort of a special currency, I think, now for probably the next 10 years. I absolutely agree. I remember we were talking earlier. You were uh, you you also related it to a little bit of like the tra- of of travel agencies back in the day curating the entire process. Where now it's there's a lot of information, but you kind of have to do it yourself. You don't really know where to start. So you know, Grove Collaborative really, really is a platform that can really help you um, do that. But my only my only thing about uh, Grove Collaborative, and I know we and I, I know we talked about this. It's usually when I see you know, eco-friendly, it's usually for, you know, the the higher tier because it's typically more expensive. How do you think about the future in terms of sustainability and 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 eco-friendly products? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And, um, you know, generally speaking, even though a lot of times our cultural norms, like a focus on sustainability and inclusivity, are driven by um, the young, driven by Gen Z in our case today, um, access to being able to express those values from a consumer standpoint has kind of been the province of the wealthy, you know, uh, because oftentimes the, you know, the products and services that are meant to appeal to the mass market sort of are optimized for the lowest cost. And I think what you're saying is exactly right. What's really interesting to me, and again, this is an important way that we think about investing, is that when you look at some of the products and services that have been able to go down market to provide access to the expression of those values and products for the masses, um, they're very, very successful. So think of Tesla starting out with a, a very expensive car, which they still have, but then going down to the Model 3, right? which was the intention of the company from the beginning to sort of make a mass market, um, lower cost electric car, and, and by doing so play a meaningful role in climate change. Um, think about the Prius, sort of similarly to that, right? By making a mass market, they made a much more fuel-efficient car that everyone uh, could access. Grove Collaborative is interesting, just another use case, because I think you're right. You know, usually if you wanted those kinds of products, you have to live in an urban environment uh, where they had like a health food store or uh, Whole Foods or something like that. What Grove has really done is create a product, a, a process and a product that allows anyone around the country, and indeed most of their customers are middle Americans and not high-income middle Americans sort of everyday Americans, uh, giving them access to these sort of sustainable home essential and, and really helping them become uh, the sustainable households that they want to be because they care about their children and what their children are exposed to. So I, I think there's definitely a, whether you start at the high end to sort of fund the business originally, or you start sort of in the middle, the way the growth did, I think it's really important to think about how these products don't just become the province of the wealthy, but have a pathway to serving everyone. Because that's the place that 
you can build a really big company. We talked before as well about social media and the empty calories you might be getting from uh, social media due to uh, status and not really uh, connecting. I wanted to hear your thoughts about the future of social media. The future of social media is something um, that's really near and dear to my heart from my early days at MTV when we were um, uh, really trying to play a big role in the evolution of of social media, the dawn of social media in the early 2000s to my time at Twitter, uh, which I worked most recently when I ran corporate development. So um, I think social media is an incredible tool, has a great role to play in connecting the masses. But I think we're kind of you know, I think it's it's both zeitgeisty, but also reality that social media has not fulfilled us personally and emotionally the way that we kind of hoped. Um, it's brought us closer together, but in a way that doesn't isn't always authentic. And part of the reason for that is that if you look at sort of pre-social media, if you think about uh, let's use MTV as an example, you know, media in general was still curated by people, right? Institutions still had authority. There were VJs. There were uh, newscasters. There were, you know, uh, editorial institutions like the New York Times that had sort of a, you know, that were committed to trying their best to create truth. And what's happened over the last sort of 15 years or so with social media is that technology platforms have sort of filled that media void and are taking up a lot of our attention. But when platforms optimize for engagement, they don't necessarily optimize for some you know, sort of a uh, the kind of thing that might actually build brain fulfillment, this sort of human uh, part of it. This idea that there's another person on their side curating, caring about the work I'm providing and what they're consuming. Um, and I think the future of social media, if I think about the next 10 years, and we're seeing this with more and more companies, is recognizing that humans want more authentic human connection, that offline human connection is as important, if not more important, than connecting with people through technology. And the technology can be a tool to get us interacting offline, but um, but doesn't need to necessarily be the only thing we interact with. And so, you know, I'm really excited to see how that develops. I think we're going to see offline online hybrids that become big companies that help people connect with others for a variety of reasons in person. Um, and we're seeing some of that right now. Um, so there's a company um, called SoFar. Music, which is growing really quickly and has such an interesting model of um, doing last minute, if you will, shows that bring people together where it's not uh, told to you up front exactly what the show is going to be. You're sort of trusting the institution of so far to create a memorable and amazing experience that actually creates human connection online. So technology is kind of a tool to reach people, but the magic's happening in that shared experience in person. And that's a really good example of kind of how, uh, of what the future could look like, I think, uh, and more fulfilling. Uh, future could look like. By the way, we're also seeing that we're talking about social media, but I would argue that this is a phenomenon that is endemic to big, interesting scale companies across a variety of categories. Like, you know, we all trust, if you're in a moment where you don't really trust institutions as much, or, you know, a monolithic, faceless organization, we're more likely to trust people. I think that's why the influencer economy has become um, meaningful. There's a real person on either side of that influencer who's who's trying to say something to me. Uh, That's why we, you know, uh, there's something compelling about getting to a car with someone who is an actual person, you know, someone in front of you. And then we crave that human connection when it comes to uh, the next generation of commerce companies. I think one trend that we are going to see consistently is that part of providing that curated experience is having an individual at the company, at the institution, sort of helping you make decisions. Stitch Fix is a good example of this. Right? There's actually uh, stylists that are helping you make great decisions about clothes. Poshmark is a marketplace 
um, that we're lucky to, to support that you know really enables its seller stylist to help create great looks for its customers. And that business is doing great. Uh, at Grove, they have um, uh, customer happiness uh, folks that help every customer sort of every uh, couple of months figure out the right items that should go into uh, their box to meet their needs. And so this, I think, I think leveraging real human intimacy um, would you know, enable or scale the technology to help people make decisions or as part of the story of what people are consuming is going to be a really important part of, of what we're all looking for in the products and services we support over the next several years. Yeah, the curation side of experience, that's something we haven't heard yet on this show. It's, it's really interesting. I've had some folks say, you know, it's funny you started a consumer podcast because, you know, as it relates to high growth companies, consumer is dead. And wanted to hear your thoughts about if it's if it's a contrarian time to invest in consumer. About being a, being a contrarian moment. I think the reason people are thinking that, you know, there's there's some validity, if I can take the stance of why is it a contrarian time to be a consumer investor in the sense that you have an explosion of interesting consumer companies Usually when a new platform is brought to market, whether that's been well-trod ground, whether it was the internet, social, was another platform that sort of created a mini-movement. One important platform is actually SEM, just search, created a whole new category of commerce companies that couldn't have existed before. And then certainly mobile. So, you know, there's a lot of discussion around what's the next platform that you have a platform to create a really big category of finding companies. And, you know, with the absence of that new platform, right, what we're seeing with Companies like Facebook, as I mentioned earlier, is that they tend to control access to the consumer and therefore soak up all the money in the space. Having said that, during these quote-unquote fallow times in uh, between new platform adoption, um, we've seen really interesting big companies get created. You know, the whole social media company movement happened in such a time uh, in the early 2000s. There's a bunch of really interesting commerce companies created in the early 2000s during a time. So I don't, I would never say that founders of consumer companies don't lack for innovation. They are always really interesting founders doing really interesting things. And we're inspired every day by the people that come to our offices and, and are sharing their dreams with us and what kind of impact they want to make in the world. That doesn't mean it's easy, but you know what, it's never easy. And uh, and so no, we're, we're actually quite bullish that there are lots of opportunities for great founders speaking to consumers to build big companies. It just may take a little longer than and then at the beginning of the uh, you know, sort of Cambrian explosion of a new platform, or may require a little more ingenuity on the part of the of the founder, but that's certainly not uh, that's no different from really creating any company. I think the thing we'll look back on in this moment is like there's so many ways to apply software in interesting and useful ways to helping consumers, and I think we're just starting to see some of that. When I talk about curation, about you know a small number of uh, customer happiness people serving millions of subscribers, when we talk about how do you use AI to help consumers make buying decisions or, or make choices, marketplaces to bring different kinds of people together where there's uh, institutional trust created in the middle. There's, there's so many ways, kind of behind the scenes even, to leverage software and technology. And I think that's, that's going to be an interesting part of what makes a really interesting consumer company. You know, not losing without losing that humanity that we talked about earlier. And I think we're in the early innings of learning how that's going to be applied by the next generation of founders. And so that, that's another reason that we're bullish. Those are all great points about why some investors might think this is a contrarian time since, uh, you know, there hasn't been a new platform for for a little bit. Rishi, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time. I super appreciate you having me, Mike. Thank you so much. I mean, it's great that you're uh, covering these kind of topics and um, I can't wait to see how it turns out. 
And there you have it. If you enjoyed this, I highly recommend checking out Rishi's full episode. Thank you again, Rishi, for taking the time to share your views and insights. This was a lot of fun. If you'd like to follow Rishi on Twitter, you can at Rishi Garg. We will also have a link to his article, Building a Consumer Franchise, which is pretty great. If you're a founder and working on something innovative, have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at Consumer VC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and stay safe. <laughs>